your guest, my name's Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. It's my pleasure to uh, open God's Word with you this morning. If you want, you can go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 12. I'll get there in just a moment. On the screen is the opening line from the book of, the Reve- uh, book of Revelation. It's a little bit of a flashback for us about six weeks ago. This is where we started. Our English word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revealing. I've encouraged us to understand the purpose of the book as God pulling back the curtain, right? The curtain of time and space revealing what is ahead. Of course, the question is, what exactly is revealed as the curtain is pulled back? Well, John is really clear. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation is from Jesus. The revelation is about Jesus, the one entrusted with the work of redemption in the world, which includes judgment of human sinfulness, salvation of those who are trusting in him, and then a certain future eternal restoration of all things. In fact, it's a good time. I'll mention that we have a new art gallery, our new exhibit in our art gallery. Our art gallery is just one wall out in the foyer. Turn left as you're headed towards the restroom, and we have an exhibit there about the new heavens and the new earth, and about four pieces have been submitted Uh, from your fellow congregants to consider the good that lies ahead, the new heavens, the new earth, which is ours as we trust in Christ. Now, along with revealing Jesus as Savior, the curtain is also pulled back on God's adversary. And our adversary, for that matter, the one who undermines God's authority, attacks God's people, thwarts God, God's rightful praise. Satan's work is referenced as early as chapter 2. For example, to the church in Smyrna, Jesus said, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. To the church at Pergamum, same chapter, Revelation 2. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And to the church of Thyatira, Jesus said, Now to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. The so-called deep secrets of Satan makes me think of what are often cult teachings, that is, special knowledge in which people are brought in uh, and promised something that no one else has access to. Something similar was going on apparently in Thyatira. Do we picture Satan at work in the world in these types of ways still? If so, what do we picture him doing? I don't want to cheat second service out of the, uh, the rant I had in first service about Halloween, so I'll just insert it here. Uh, I know that not everybody knows me well enough to know, man, I'm all about chocolate. Kids coming to my door, come to my door. You'll get chocolate on Halloween, right? It's actually on a Sunday this year. And I'm all about kids dressing up in silly costumes. Man, I get that. And in our neighborhood, it's parents, they're out in the street, and they're, you're getting to know people. It's lots of fun. What I can't, what actually blows my mind, I don't understand, is the newest Halloween decoration. Have you seen this? 
And Wheaton, for some reason, is really good at this decoration. I've seen two or three of them around town. They're 20-ish foot skeletons. Have y'all seen these? They're giant. One skeleton in my neighborhood is higher than the roof of the house. It's in the front yard, and it's above the roof of the house. It's grotesque. And not only is it grotesque, I find myself asking, do we not have enough evil? Do we need a day dedicated to celebrating evil? We have enough evil. I just think of the murder rate in Chicago this year alone. Do we need to put headstones in our front yard? And if you've got a headstone in your front yard, I'm not saying you're evil. That's not, I'm just, I'm questioning the wisdom. Growing up, I would always tease my kids, hey, it's, the, it's time to celebrate evil. And I'm thinking, we have plenty of evil. How, so do we picture Satan at work in the world in the ways that Revelation chapter 2 describes it? Jesus to the churches of Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira addresses it. Do we picture it ongoing? How might he be attacking people, the people of God today? Who? So how might he be attacking the people of God today? Who might Satan be using to execute his schemes? Now there's a rough one. And I have a little video for us to watch that I believe will help us imagine some aspects of Satan's work in the world today as well as how best to combat it. So let's watch this together.
Amen. The church in North Korea needs our prayers. I think of the church in Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, China. Might Satan be at work through governments and their laws? Oops, sorry. Might Satan be at work through governments and their laws? Explanations of North Korea's struggles focusing on human sinfulness are true enough, but as the curtain is pulled back, God reveals behind human societies, religions, and philosophies, there is a cosmic conflict going on, and it is fueled by an evil one, Satan, the devil. If you haven't already, turn to Revelation chapter 12, follow along in your copy of the scripture. As I read of the historic work of Satan and his ongoing work. Revelation chapter 12, and I'm going to part this up and, and pause along the way. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will, quote, rule all the nations with an iron scepter, close quote. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Only three times does John label something a sign in the book of Revelation. A sign is a unique demarcation along the road of redemptive history. You may remember in John's gospel, uh, Jesus performed signs and wonders. The signs were meant to demonstrate his deity. Here John uses the word again, but he only uses it three times. The pregnant woman's appearing is described as a great sign. The implication seems to be that the woman and God's work in and through her is greater than the lesser sign of this enormous red dragon's appearing. The woman has a crown of 12 stars on her head, which most likely represents the 12 tribes of Israel, the one through whom the Messiah would come. Right? She's pregnant. She's going to deliver. We know that this promise, these 12 nations were going to bring us the Messiah. This is the work of God through redemptive history. Sure enough, she gives birth to a son, then the quote he will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. It's from the second psalm, a messianic psalm, talking about the authority of our Savior. We learn the dragon meant to devour the woman's child, but God snatches him up, protecting him to his throne, a clear reference to his ascension. Then the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God. Here's my question. Why do you suppose she needs a place of protection? a place of God's care. Why is she fleeing? Let's continue in verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. 
but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Ah, here we learn that this enormous red dragon isn't simply a caricature of evil, but it's actually personified evil. Too many Christians think there's just a characterization of evil, evil generic in the Bible. That's not the case. Evil's personified in the Bible. This dragon is a way of illustrating or describing uh, the, the danger, the ominous nature of the person, Satan, the devil. Satan has seven uh, crowns on his head. Seven was the number of completeness. Thorn, uh, uh, seven heads and seven crowns represent on each of the seven heads, right? Seven's the number of perfection or completeness. Lots of sevens in the book of Revelation. So we have personified evil, and we have this number seven with seven heads and seven crowns. What I get here is a picture of of completeness, evil personified, total in his evil nature. And so the woman who represents faithful Israel needed a place of safety because she's threatened by this real force, this real demonic person. Let's keep reading verses 12, 11, uh, 10, 11, and 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of the Messiah. These are good things. It follows on the defeat of the evil one. Now have come salvation, praise the Lord, and power, praise the Lord, and the kingdom of our God, praise the Lord, and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. If you're familiar with the Old Testament book of Job, you'll remember that the accuser came before the throne of God and accused Job of serving God only because he was wealthy. He's hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to them. He's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of our Messiah. That's good news. But woe to the earth because he's been hurled down. Well, how can these both be true? How can the salvation and the power and the kingdom and the authority be ours along with woe? How can these both be our reality? And it is our experience, is it not? Woe means distress, means sorrow, it means dread. Distress and dread and sorrow for those who are a part of the earth. But salvation and power and authority, the authority of the kingdom's coming, right? The and, and the, the presence of God, but woe. How can they both be the case? They're both the case because those trusting in the blood of the Lamb, those armed with the word of the testimony, they overcome the evil one. 
But Satan is at work in the world, bringing distress and trouble. The dragon, now hurled to the earth, filled with fury, brings strife and difficulty with him. Life is difficult on the earth, and some even lose their lives because he targets them because of the word of their testimony about Christ, like in North Korea. I love that video because it's a, it's a video uh, in prayer. It's not just a counting of all the difficulties, and they have plenty, but it's a plea to God, your kingdom come, your authority, your power, your salvation, protect your church, strengthen your people, care for that nation. Let's close the chapter. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman, so she needs a place to flee to. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's a lot of references here to the exodus of Israel and the protection of God as they fled into the wilderness. Prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and a half time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman, sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off, note where he goes, to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Who are they? Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Here's why there's woe, because he's waging war on the offspring of the Messiah. In the Messianic community, faithful Israel delivers this Messiah. Both Jews and Gentiles alike are brought into this community of trust in Christ, those who keep God's commands and are faithful in their testimony about Jesus. Since Satan's plot to destroy the Messiah was thwarted, the dragon turns his rage on the Messianic community, both Jews and Gentiles alike. So what are our takeaways? This is our reality. What are our takeaways? And there could be many. Here's at 50,000 feet. Satan's the active enemy of God's people. Then the dragon was enraged and he went off to wage war against me and everybody else in this room who's trusting in the Savior. This means while governments around the world persecute Christians, as the curtains pull back, we know it's Satan who's ultimately the one who's fueling that persecution, who's coming against the church, whether it's through governments that oppress believers or whatever it might be. That's why Paul insists that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, It's not simply that North Korea needs a political remedy. I happen to believe they need a political remedy as well. But what they really need is a spiritual remedy. They need the Savior. Paul says our battle is against the spiritual forces of evil at work in the world. In fact, if you're familiar with the next few chapters of the book of Revelation, Satan, a He brings a beast out of the sea, and then he brings a beast out of the land, and the beast out of the land marks all willing with the the number 666 on their forehead. 
And then he mobilizes those with the number, this mark of the beast, in all-out war against those who are marked as God's people. So the question's not whether Satan's the active enemy of God's people. Clearly, that is the, that's the record of the New Testament. A better question or a more thorough or deep-reaching question is, what are the strategies, what are the schemes of the one who is coming against us so that we might stand? Best way to know the strategies or the schemes or one of the, the best ways is to look at the names used to describe Satan in the New Testament. Six of them are on the screen, and I'll just I'll work my way through them slowly here. The first one's from the book of Revelation, chapter 9, verse 11, Abaddon, or destroyer. One of Satan's strategies is simply the destruction of God's creation, just wreaking havoc, unleashing chaos. This includes all types of destructive forces, wind, hail, rain, floods, war, whatever he can do to destroy God's beautiful creation and the people here on his creation. Someone asked, and I, I would encourage you to listen to the podcast this week. I, I think there's going to be lots of good questions. I, I couldn't uh, offer a thoroughgoing theology of Satan in, in just a few minutes, but um, someone said, well, is Satan really able to marshal natural forces, uh, tornadoes and tsunamis? Is, is he really given that authority? And there's some indication in Scripture, yes, that's exactly how some of Job's children died. Now, is every tsunami a work of Satan? I don't have the authority to say that. Generally, when we're talking about the work of Satan in the world, we're talking about, uh, our, when we're talking about sin in the world and destruction, we're talking about three things. The world, just generically, the, the uh, collective sin that we commit together, my flesh, our flesh, and then the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil is what I would attribute the pain and suffering of that we experience in this life too. So I would say, you know, about a third of the hell that's unleashed on earth, she said it in her prayer, North Korea has become a living hell, about a third of the hell unleashed on the earth, I would attribute to Satan, the active enemy of God's people and of God's creation. It's interesting in the context of Abaddon, the destroyer, in Revelation 9, the abyss is opened and these horse-like locusts pour out of the abyss. And the locusts are given permission to attack anybody that does not have the mark of God, the seal of God. And I raise this because I've had people say to me, well, gosh, Kelly, if, if Satan is the active enemy of God's people, why would I want to identify with God's people? I think that's a fair question. <laughs> because without God, you're unprotected. Without God, you're in the enemy's camp. And it's not pleasant there. Here in Revelation 9, 11, the abyss is open and these horse-like locusts come out and they attack not the people of God who are actually uh, sealed by God. They're attacking those that, have, that are part of, not a part of God's people, that haven't been identified with God's people. So hell is effectively unleashed on those not. So I would say if you, if you think that that Christians have it bad, being the target of Satan's attacks, imagine being without, without God's seal, without God's presence in a world where the devil is furious, where he's enraged. I'll be honest with you, there were three reasons why I ran from God when he was calling me into ministry. And I, I, I functionally ran. 
I graduated from a prestigious university about a mile from here and immediately started cleaning, uh, I, cleaning toilets and cleaning carpets. Uh, Sherry, when we got engaged, she, she thought I'd be a lawyer. That's what she had signed up for. And I remember saying, after we were engaged, I remember saying, I, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. I know what I don't want to do. And anytime you state a goal in the negative, you're running from something. I said, quote, I don't want to be a pastor. Why of all the things, it should have been, you know, lights and sounds and buzzers should have gone off. You're running, Kelly, you're running. Three reasons why I didn't want to go into ministry. One of them was I was afraid of Satan. And I know that pastors had large targets on their backs. And it took God a couple years to work me through that process and say the safest place to be is in his will. It's not any safer outside his will. Is that making sense? So I needed to do what I was called to do. That's the safest place to be. So I'll insert the gospel here. While it's true that Christians are uniquely targeted by Satan, at least Christians have the presence of the Holy Spirit by which they are sealed. And they've been given the armor of God, Ephesians 6, by which they can take their stand. And I would urge you today, maybe it's making sense to you that for the first time, maybe you see, you see clearly, just watch the evening news, the hell that's being unleashed on earth and the chaos. And you say, I need protection. I want protection. Your creator, your father has given you protection by sending his son and snatching him from Satan's claws, the one who wanted to devour him, and bringing him up to the throne where he lives today to make intercession for us. He gave his life so that we can receive his forgiveness and presence. And I would urge you, right where you're seated, you can talk to your creator and say, I need protection. I need protection from the evil one. Evil's not generic. Evil's personified. And being unleashed in the world in a hellish fashion and you do need protection. And I would urge you, confess, say, I'm a sinner, I need protection, thanks for sending your son. And Scripture says the Spirit will enter your life and you'll be sealed. It's not that everything's rosy, but then you get this handoff of this armor by which you can stand. And I need to get there, so we'll keep moving here. Murderer. Most simply put, a primary strategy of Satan is to diminish the value of life. Life was God's idea. I came that you might have life and life to the full, Jesus said. He's the creator of life. Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. That's, That's who our Father is. That's who our creator is. Our enemy takes life. The context in which this is going on, John 8, 44, people are disputing with Jesus about who he is. They won't accept him as the Messiah, which is his testimony. So what? They orchestrate his death, his murder. They put to death an innocent man. The orchestration of murder in the world includes the death of preborn children. I think of the, uh, the loss of life um, in domestic abuse. Anything that threatens life, I think of slavery mentioned on the, the prayer video. Anything that diminishes life, its value, I think of self-harm that's common in our suburban culture among teenagers. Anything that diminishes that I'm created in the image of God and I have value and worth 
is a ploy of Satan in this world. Thief. The thief, we're told in John 10.10, comes to kill, steal, and destroy. The specific context here is Satan is, uh, Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd. He's gentle. That's, this is who our Savior is. He's gentle, and he's kind, and he protects his sheep, and his sheep hear his voice. These are metaphors for how he cares for us, like a father cares for children, are supposed to care for children. Some of us didn't have great fathers. And then he describes, this is who I am. I'm the good shepherd. And then he says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He steals from us physically. He steals from us spiritually. We prayed this morning for protection from the evil one. The word of God is being sown like you would sow in a garden seed. And we're told in Matthew 13, that Satan comes along after it and he tries to steal the seed. So some of you will go home today and over lunch or as you're watching football, you'll think, man, that's crazy to think personified evil. Do I really buy that? And, and it's the evil one trying to take the truth of God's word out of the soil of your heart. Liar. He's, he's called in this passage, John 8, the father of lies. And so every lie in the world originates with this personified evil. He tells lies uh, himself, he draws us into believing lies, then he, he gets us to start telling lies. It's for this reason that Paul tells us to renew our minds. And I'll, The largest work I've had to do in my life, and it's still going on, is to identify the lies I've believed, reject them, and replace them with the truth of God's Word. It's ongoing. It's daily. Uh, it's, it's all the time. What lies have I believed what truth needs to replace it, and so I reject the lie. I'll call it, that's a lie, that's not true, that's from the father of lies, and then I'll go look for the truth in God's word to replace it. And so you can just play it backwards. Anytime that there's uh, uh, destruction or loss or uh, theft in your life or you're tormented, I start to ask, I, I'm suffering, where have I believed a lie? Are there lies I've believed that have opened the door to this? Because my Father dwells in unapproachable light. Jesus said it himself, I'm truth. What a strange thing to say of, of yourself, right? I'm truth. Meaning there was nothing that ever happened in Jesus' mind or body that was out of line with God the Father. Perfectly consistent representation of God in the flesh. Some of you are looking quizzically, so I kind of survey as you, as you talk to somebody. Some of you are looking quizzically, so if you have questions about how this plays out, don't hesitate to text them to the, to the podcast. Deceiver. Before we believe a lie, we are deceived. In this morning's passage, Satan is described as leading the whole world astray. There's this river of water spewing from the serpent's mouth. I, I kind of take that as a metaphor of just deception and lies, false teachings that have been unleashed on the world. And God protects the messianic community from that. But there are many that get swept up in it. And we need to be on the outlook for deception. Where are we buying in slowly? Where are we are not seeing clearly the truth? The strategy, as I've noticed it, of our enemy 
is to say that right and wrong do not exist as dichotomous realities. Let me say that again. A primary strategy, as I have noticed it, is to say that right and wrong do not exist as dichotomous realities. In other words, to say, well, gray is the largest swath of reality. And I'll admit there's gray. There's things I don't know. But his strategy is to entice us to say that what is wrong according to God's word is, well, it's okay. Or what is right according to God's word is not important, vitally important. That is deception. Let me say it again. To say what is identified as wrong according to God's word is really okay to participate in. Or what is identified as right according to God's word is, well, it's, it's right, but it's, it's not that important. Don't get hung up on that. That's how I see deception enter my life. Tempter. So it's a frog and kettle experience for me. Very few, I think, are approached the way our Savior was approached in Matthew chapter uh, 4 with the tempter coming to him personally. Not many people have that, if anybody that I... We usually have the frog in the kettle where we're deceived. We, we start calling what is clearly wrong is right or what is clearly right is wrong. And it's this slow boil until we realize, oh, we bought a lie and it's produced sin in our lives and now we're entangled in the sin and can't get out. Now, despite Satan's strategies, we know that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've got all that you need for life and godliness. Look how Peter describes the appropriate posture for Christians as we live on the battlefield. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking to do to you or to someone else what he wanted to do to Christ our Savior. Devour. That's, that's the terminology used today in Revelation 12. He wanted to devour the Christ child. Resist him. Stand firm in faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Too many Christians turn spiritual warfare into a bunch of hocus pocus. What I see there on the screen is fairly mundane, uh, fairly straightforward. I I think that that, um, Satan would love us to think that spiritual warfare is, is more closely akin to what Hollywood is depicting it as. Right, the exorcist where people's heads spin around on axis. When I read the New Testament, it's fairly straightforward. It's, it's almost boring. And I want to take each of these points Peter made one by one. Be self-controlled. This is a matter of mental and physical discipline. If you want to enjoy the life and the character that Christ wants us to enjoy... If you want to live in greater freedom and joy and have more love and patience and peace in your life, then you'll have to exercise discipline. Mentally, what you let in, what you think about, and physically, what you participate in. And make no mistake, the door to action is the mind. If I want to stop a behavior, I've got to address it in my mind. Because I never, that I can think of, physically participate in something that hasn't first entered my head. The same is true 
when it comes to the character of Christ. So if I want to stop a sin, I start by addressing where have I opened the door? Where have I been deceived? What lie have I believed? Because I'm not doing physically anything I haven't first thought about, so address it. When I want to identify the character, when I want more of the character of Christ in my life, I, I don't simply start trying to behave it, fake it till you make it. I start, I start with my mind, renewing my mind and addressing it, physically disciplining my mind to think about who Christ is. It's, it's no coincidence that they overcame by the, the word of their testimony. Well, to speak a word, you have to think it. They have the testimony of who Christ is and what he's done on their mind, so they speak it and they, they have victory. Are you self-controlled? Are you paying close attention to what you're thinking and how you're behaving? And, you, and Be alert. Uh, so alert is just a biblical speak for prayerful. It's, uh, it's synonymous with keeping watch, kind of an Old Testament notion. Be alert, be prayerful. Ephesians 6, 8 is the scripture I wrote down there. It says, pray in the spirit at all times on every occasion. Stay alert and persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. We need to be praying for all believers everywhere. We need to be praying for us. Are we praying with and for our spouses? Folks, this is, I like to say, make your layups, right? Used to be a basketball coach. Just make your layups. It's, It's great that you can touch the rim, but just make your layups. I used to coach eighth graders. Just make your layups. You're shooting three, you know, fade away, three-point fadeaway jumpers. Just, are you praying with your spouse? Are you praying with and for your kids? It's just, these are layups. Some of us are consistently overwhelmed by what feels like spiritual attack and, and battles that we're losing. We need to be more alert. We need to be more prayerful. One of the best ways to learn to pray at Glowin Bible Church is to join the Zoom call that I lead twice a week, Sunday morning, 745 to 815, Wednesday nights, 7 to 8. You can, you can join the Zoom call, just send me an email. You can, you can sit there with a black screen, right? We have people that are at soccer practice picking up kids, and they're on the Zoom call. So you can listen, black screen, muted, you never have to participate. It would be great if you would. But there are a lot of people on the Zoom call just learning to pray. They're just practicing alertness. Be alert. All right, resist him. And I love this, the passage 4-7. You talk about mundane. Uh, James 4-7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he'll go bug somebody else. You tired of spiritual battles? You, are you tired of uh, losing spiritual fights? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll leave you alone. And so I, I prayed with somebody recently for deliverance. This person thought that they were under uh, unique spiritual attack, acute spiritual attack, uh, a, a demonic presence. And it would be easy to go into those meetings and say, you know, oh my gosh, what's going to happen here? Are we going to a Hollywood exorcism scene? Folks, it's fairly straightforward. Are there areas of your life, are you, are you submitting to God? And we talk through that. Are there areas of your life where you need to resist Satan? If you do those things, he'll leave you alone. He'll go to the next person. If you've got the shield of faith up 
and you've got the sword of your spirit in your hand, and you've got the helmet of salvation on your head, you're not an easy target. He'll go to somebody else that's an easier target. Resist him. How do we resist him? Man, it's as simple as, how do we submit to God? Well, I, you know what? I would take inventory of the apps on your phone. I mean, just talking at a 21st century level, what are you Googling? What, what do you find entertaining? Are you laughing at things you would, here's, this is the key one. Do you find yourself laughing at things you'd never want your kids to participate in? You probably shouldn't be laughing. That's probably not really entertainment. Resist him. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll go find a weaker target. Stand firm is the last one. Stand firm. There is a standing firm. You do live on a battlefield. 1 Peter 5.10, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Satan often brings difficulties and hardships into our lives to try and discourage us and derail us. That's why we're, you know, we're, we're called to be praying for one another, bearing each other's burdens. It's no fun to be under attack. It's no fun to be suffering hardships. We're supposed to be supporting one another. We actually help each other stand firm. That's what this gathering's about. You have an opportunity, as we always do each week, um, to respond, to, uh, to be alert here at the end. If you need prayer, I want, we all need prayer. If you want prayer, I want to invite you down. Uh, the Bolts, Steve and Pam will be down front. They'd love to pray with you uh, while, we st- while we sing. This standing firm, uh, one of the best ways to stand firm, and I'm just going to beat this horse over and over and over. That's an ugly metaphor. I'm just going to beat this drum over and over and over. This is the place to practice. If, you've, if you're having defeats out there, the best place to practice standing firm is in here. I want to encourage you, and we're getting better and better, open your mouth in song. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Folks, the place to practice the word of your testimony is in these next two songs we're going to sing. And I would encourage you to raise your volume. Find some gumption. Stand firm. Here, I'll ask for an amen. 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 All right, let's stand together. I'll pray for us. Father, I want to ask for your goodness to us as a people. Teach us to stand and to stand firm. Help us to open our mouths and sing with the passion and conviction so that the word of our testimony gives us victory over the battles we're facing. For Jesus' glory and our own good, I pray this. Amen.